Here's a question. Can you move without a gradient? Good morning. Happy Monday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. It's a little bit of a compressed week this week. Um, as, as we all know, um, but we'll figure something out. Um, we will be doing the Coffee and Coaches Conference call on Thursday morning, 6 a.m. Eastern time for all, the, all of you playing the, the home game. So don't miss out on that. Um, but let's go ahead and dig into uh, Monday's Q&A. And this is from Brian. And Brian says, Bill, I was reviewing some of your videos this week. So thank you, Brian, for reviewing those videos. He says, I came across your video titled When Stretching Works and When It Fails. Would it be fair to say that the concentric on concentric orientation you discussed is what causes bones to eventually approximate due to arthritic changes. I understand that under normal ideal circumstances, bones never touch. You are correct, sir. That is, that is accurate. Um, it seems that all range of motion is solely dependent on the ability to create a fluid gradient in one's joints, which is influenced by concentric and eccentric muscle orientations around the joints. Is that a fair statement to make or is there more to the big picture? Brian, I love the way you're thinking. Um, you are absolutely correct that we must have a gradient um, to, to exist, to allow movement to occur. In fact, this is an absolute universal principle um, under every circumstance. So, so in the physical world, nothing moves without, without a gradient. So a gradient is, is merely, in its simplest terms, a difference. And so gravity uh, is representative of an energy gradient. Um, electrical charge moves on a gradient. The solutes that move in and out of a cell move on gradients. So everything requires a gradient to move. But it would probably behoove us to do a quickie review of the whole concept of um, Bones Don't Touch for those folks that haven't watched that video yet right there. Maybe want to go watch that after we get done here. Um, so. We want to talk about the mechanisms of, of, that, the, that keeps bones apart. So first and foremost, we want to talk about the, the water behavior. So the synovial fluid in the joint is, is mostly water. It's got some protein stuff that, that floats around in it. But water behaves very specifically when it's approximated um, to different surfaces. So the hyaline cartilage that lines the, the joints is very hydrophilic, so it likes water. And when water's up against it, the water separates into positively and negatively charged water. And that positively charged water stays right through the middle of the joint because the, the negative would approximate to, to the hyaline cartilage. And so then now what we have is a, an electromagnetic force that, that actually keeps the, the, the joint apart. So these positive charges repel one another. And, and it's just like trying to bring two north poles of magnets together. You get that repulsive force, so it pushes the joint apart. It also makes the synovial fluid in that middle very, very slippery, which is kind of good, so it keeps the joints from squeaking, just like the motor oil in your, in your car engine. So again, very, very useful on, on multiple levels. We also have connective tissue behaviors that, that surround the joint. So um, if we were talking about, say, a knee joint, um, if you look at the connective tissue, we've got connective tissues that are going all sort of which ways, but, but there's, a, there's a, a strong horizontal element to that. And so when we compress the knee joint, so we've put weight on the knee joint, 
that connector tissue becomes very, very stiff. So it's loaded very, very quickly. So this is actually the overcoming action that we talk about in the connective tissues when we're talking about any kind of movement. And so that makes the knee joint very, very stiff. And so it compresses the fluid inside the joint. And so now we have an external compression that actually pushes those bones apart. And so um, we need all of these mechanisms to be intact. So we have this nice, nice healthy knee joint. But we also need to be able to shift this fluid around to have normal movement. So as you stated um, in the concentric on concentric orientation, so let's just say that we only have two sides of a knee joint here. If we have concentric on one side, concentric on the other side, we have a resultant pressure that is straight through the joint. So we have this, this compressive uh, um, strategy throughout the joint. The problem here is, is this, this hyaline cartilage that creates our electromagnetic element uh, of, our, of our protection, if you will, um, against the, the bones touching is, is going to be affected by this. So the, the nutrition that supplies this hyaline cartilage comes from the subchondral bone. And so if I put enough pressure on the subchondral bone over a long enough period of time, I'm gonna reduce the ability of the nutrients to, to diffuse against the grade, with the gradient rather, the, to diffuse from the bloodstream to the hyaline cartilage. And then so what we eventually get is a breakdown of this hyaline cartilage from the bony side. And so if this cartilage breaks down, I lose my electromagnetic capabilities. I can no longer keep the joints separated. And so now I have this high potential that I'm going to develop some form of arthritic condition as this hyaline cartilage starts to break down. Now, that's concentric on concentric. So, so I think you're correct, Brian, that, that this is a mechanism. But now I want you to think about a specific circumstance. So let's talk about, let's just say somebody with a, with a narrow ISA. So here's what we know about those folks with narrow ISA that have limited breathing excursion, is that I have an inhalation biased axial skeleton with a compensatory exhalation strategy. And what that does, Brian, is it's gonna bias towards external rotation um, throughout the, the peripheral joints. And so under this circumstance, what I have is a concentric bias on one side, eccentric bias on the other, which is a gradient that's gonna move our joint in a direction. But if I cannot concentrically orient the eccentric musculature or eccentrically orient that concentric musculature, I no longer have the, the fluid shift that is required for me to move this joint effectively. Now I have the same concept that I had with the concentric on concentric. I just have it more localized to one aspect of the joint. So this might be why you see in a knee, you see the medial compartment um, tend to break down a little bit quicker than everything else, or you'll see the posterior shoulder break down a little bit quicker uh, than the rest. Now. I also want you to understand the circumstance that this is gonna affect all of your connective tissues. So anytime I put a prolonged pressure or tension on these connective tissues, I'm gonna see the same progressive degeneration because I'm reducing blood flow, I'm reducing the, the nutrients that are getting to those tissues. So this might be why we see the degenerative changes in, in tendons over time, um, in addition to the arthritic changes. So I want you to keep that in mind as well, Brian. Brian, this is a great question. For those of you that, that are interested, um, go watch the uh, uh, Bones Don't Touch and Joints Aren't Levers video. And then also the uh, When Stretching Works and When It Fails video. We'll also talk about these concepts as well. So I would refer you to those. If you have any further questions or comments, please send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. And I will see you tomorrow. Where does building muscle fit into the model? 
Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Tuesday, we are rolling. Um, reminder, Coffee and Coaches Conference call, Thursday morning, 6 a.m. We will be doing it this week. Um, so before you go off and celebrate, you may want to just hang out with us, have a little coffee, and, and talk shop on Thursday morning. Um, let's dig right into Tuesday's Q&A. And this is for Andrew. Andrew and I have been going back and forth a little bit on email. And he has some really legitimate questions about hypertrophy and, and where does it really, really fit into the model. And, and I think that... Um, one of the perspectives that is very, very common in the industry creates a lot of interference. And so we're gonna kind of talk about that a little bit. And so Andrew says, I've been following your YouTube videos and implementing your principles into my work for several months now. Thank you very much for taking advantage of that. He says, one area where I still struggle is understanding the place of skeletal muscle hypertrophy in your model. In my mind, it is conceivable that someone could have overly developed specific muscles through poor training program and actually benefit from selective hypertrophy of the antagonistic muscles provided that there are no compensatory strategies being reinforced as this could alter their center of mass favorably. Is there any merit to this thought process? And let's give that a big fat maybe. So we have to th start thinking about what the secondary consequences are here, Andrew, um, because it's not just muscles that we're talking about. So we're always talking about um, other potential influences. So the consequences of hypertrophy training, so we gotta think about this. So we get superficial muscle cross-sectional areas, so that might be favorable. Increased force production might be favorable. Exhalation strategy may be favorable. Compression may be favorable. And then shape change may be favorable. And so I always say maybe because we just don't know. And, and we'll talk about this a little bit at the end of the discussion as to how we want to approach this uh, from a training perspective. But one of the things that we always want to recognize is that we always have tension in the system itself. And so the way that the, the shape of the system influences that is it's going to increase or decrease tension. So I got my little Hoberman sphere here as a representation of, of what our starting conditions may be. So this is a sphere. So we're going to make an assumption that our compression and tension elements are rather evenly uh, distributed. And so what I want you to recognize is that if I create a, a, a compression on this side and a compression on this side, and I'm gonna change the shape of it, and you can see my little X in the middle changes its orientation, and now I have greater tension through the system. So the same thing is gonna happen under the circumstances when we talk about hypertrophy training because we're, we're focused primarily on, on this superficial musculature. So we're talking about pecs, we're talking about rectus abs, we're talking about trapezius, and we're talking about the lats, so the big stuff that's on the outside and, and what we want to recognize is that, is that those muscles are going to be squeezers. And so they're always going to create this anterior, posterior compressive strategy, which is going to change the shape, um, and sometimes favorably, sometimes unfavorably. And so because there's always tension in the system, if I lose the ability to produce a gradient, so I have to have expansion, and, and compression to create a gradient, I may sacrifice something something that's important. Um, this may or may not influence performance. So if force production goes up, that could be a good thing. If movement is not negatively affected, then I might have a favorable outcome. 
In the case of like, a, say, a large human being who is an offensive lineman in football, it may behoove me to superimpose a tremendous amount of muscle mass on him, increase his compressive strategy, and actually take away certain things. So make it more difficult for him to, to rotate because as an offensive lineman, I don't want to get turned. And so this might be a, a favorable shape change that's going to maintain tension through the system. And while the sacrifices are in, in certain ranges of motion, they don't negatively affect my performance. And so what we want to, again, take a look at is how we actually produce this compression and expansion and what the resultants are. So if I, say, create an anterior compression and I have posterior expansion, on, on the opposing side, I have just improved my capabilities towards external rotation. If I look at the opposing uh, um, representation, where I have a posterior compression and anterior expansion, I have now improved my abilities to capture internal rotations. Now, where we run into difficulties with this antagonistic representation, um, which is actually quite in incorrect, um, because if I have compression on one side and my assumption is, is that all I got to do is train the opposing side and then I'll recapture range of motion, I actually have to strategize ultra training to alleviate the, the initial compressive strategy. So if I create anterior compression and I have posterior expansion where I have ER capabilities and I think, well, I got to recapture my IRS, I'm just going to train the back side. What I'm going to end up doing is I'm going to have a compression on the front side and I'm going to compression on the back side unless I do something that alleviates that, that anterior compression. And so then my resultant is, again, I'm getting squeezed front to back and I'm giving up something potentially. Potentially, again, I just don't know what the answer is going to be. So the, antag the, the antagonistic representation of the superficial musculature is incorrect because I don't have pushers on one side and pullers on the other. What I have is compressors on one side, compressors on the other side, and I have to manipulate their ability to expand and compress if I want to influence performance in a favorable way if I need to recapture some element of movement. So the way you do this, everybody's there in an experiment. It's, it's an N equals one situation. I have to determine what my key performance indicators are. Sometimes I don't even know what those are until I start training someone and I see what the results are. So for instance, it may behoove me to strength train one of my one of my baseball pitchers to increase their force production and I will get a favorable response in velocity. However, if I sacrifice their ability to turn because of the shape changes involved or the reduction in movement, say through a, a baseball pitcher's shoulder where I reduce this range of motion and I take away velocity, bad strategy. So I just don't know what those answers are going to be. And so again, we can't just automatically say, oh, muscle mass is good. Oh, increased force production is good. I have to look at what the results are and then how does that influence that individual's performance. So Andrew, this is a great question because I think it's a grossly misunderstood concept, um, with, especially with this antagonistic push-pull thing that, that probably just needs to disappear. But again, I thank you for the question. If I did not answer it sufficiently, please ask me another question. Go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. As always, Wednesdays, very crunched. Um, more so this week because of the, the holiday coming up. Um, had to move a bunch of stuff 
um, onto the Wednesday schedule. So we got to we got to uh, cut to the chase here. I'm going to do three highlights um, from previous videos that that I hope that you've seen before. And this is a review. If not, you're going to love these. Um, we got one on the infrastructural angle and why it's not a number that you need to be chasing when we're talking about about measurements and why there's no ideal so you're going to want to watch that um, there's also the second one is a really common mistake that people are making when they're coaching breathing especially with your wide isa individuals and then third we've got uh, what causes a positive hawkins kennedy impingement test and how to clean that up. Also, a quick reminder, uh, tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Thursday, uh, we got the Coffee and Coaches Conference call as usual. So it's a great way to sort of lead into the holiday, hang out with some coaches, drink some coffee, and we'll talk shop for as long as we can uh, tomorrow morning. So um, everybody have a great Wednesday. Um, I, will, I will probably see you later this week. Hard to say, it's just a weird week. Um, everybody have a great day, and I'll see ya. If we get to, to close to the, to the to 2020 here, there's been a couple Korean studies where they were looking at ISAs and they're trying to find a, a good way to measure it. Um, and they're trying to find sort of like some averages or some sort of weird optimal. And then um, they were trying to determine uh, inter-rater reliability, which, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> which turned out to be very, very high inter-rater reliability. So that's good for us because it gives us an, an, an opportunity to just say, okay, we're all gonna be pretty good at determining what is a wide and what is a narrow. But where do these numbers come from? So Shirley Sarman participated in a study with, with, with uh, uh, another uh, practitioner, I'm assuming, uh, named Zeller in, in 1983. Um, it, it's in a supplement from physical, the Physical Therapy Journal, which apparently doesn't exist. I can't find it anywhere. Um, but they, they talked about 83 degrees as some sort of average or optimal or something weird like that. I think the Koreans found something that was just shy of 90 degrees. And so it's, it's almost like they, they said, okay, well, you know, it's kind of like that. So let's just say 90 is, is, the, is the standard. And so a lot of people are using 90 as the standard. The, the New Zealanders are using 90 as the standard. But I think it's, I think it's a little bit of horse hockey. Um, it's kind of like just throwing a dart at a dartboard and going, oh, 90, okay, we'll call it that. Um, because there's really no foundation for it. It doesn't really represent anything useful for us to try to chase a number and say that, that this is optimal, this is the standard, and we need to push people towards this because, again, it's just not very useful. Um, the, the one number that I've used and talked about um, is, the, is the 108 thing. And where that comes from, Zoe, is is from two behaviors. So, so uh, Graham Scar did did some work in 2013, and he was looking at, at at the helical orientation of a tube. I don't think you can see this very well. So I got I got helices drawn on a tube, and and so the helical angle is where everything crisscrosses, right? So it looks like an ISA, and then they measure from the vertical. And what he found was that when you have an angle from the vertical at about 54.44 degrees, I have a tube that can elongate and expand in both directions equally. And so what that would be representative of somebody that would have, say, the ability to inhale and the ability to, to exhale effectively. And then we say, well, there's the optimal. But the reality is, it's like, no, that's just somebody that has that capacity when they have that kind of an angle. So chasing it is useless because um, trying, to, trying to put somebody into a standard is like trying to change somebody's height or their 
shoe size and say, oh, um, I'm sorry, sir, you're six foot six, you're way too tall. If we can make you six foot three, you'll feel so much better. And so we can't look at this thing as, as, as something like that. So we're not chasing an optimal, we're not chasing a standard, and we're not chasing a number. Get the numbers out of your head, except for one reason, and I'll tell you that here in just a minute. So what 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 comes out of all this stuff, so all the people that came before us had bits and pieces of information that are very, very useful, but you gotta look at a whole bunch of resources and then try to bring them together. And that's kind of what I did when I constructed the wide ISA and narrow ISA archetypes, is I was looking for the behavioral bias that would help me determine what the best intervention for this person is to restore some capacity of adaptability. And so what the ISA represents is one small piece of a big puzzle because what it represents is the structural element that, that this person will be biased for for life. It is a genetically determined um, uh, structural element um, that will um, tell me um, what type of muscle activity they're going to be biased towards. It tells me what type of breathing strategy they're biased towards. It tells me uh, concentric eccentric orientation. Are they biased towards internal and external rotation? And so that's why my archetypes are so important for me because it allows me to determine the best possible intervention that's going to restore the adaptability. I'm not trying to chase a number. I'm not trying to push people towards something that they have no capacity to reach. I will never be an NBA basketball player. I'm not even going to try because I know I can't do it. Kind of along the same lines. Okay, so what we have is an ISA that helps us determine part of, of the structure that's going to determine the behavioral bias of this human being. But, but point being is that most of our resting breathing should be relaxed and comfortable and not require any thought. Now, when I started talking about the two archetypes, when I started talking about wide ISAs and narrow ISAs and classifying them in regards to their, their tendencies, we started to talk about using different ways of breathing to reinforce uh, a, a change, to, to get someone to the opposite end of, of this, uh, the, it appears to be this dichotomy of inhalation, exhalation, they're actually occurring at the same time. So it's not really a, a true dichotomy. But because the diaphragm does not descend uniformly in the two archetypes, it requires that there's two different types of breathing when we're trying to restore movement capability. So with the narrow ISAs, because of the way that they trap air on the thorax, if we use a high pressure strategy, all we do is reinforce the compensatory strategy. We continue to trap air and we don't make the changes that we're, we've been attempting to change. And, and so we would use a more relaxed mouth, sort of, we always describe it as like fogging up a window, fogging up a mirror type of breathing because if we can slow down the exhalation, we actually uh, provide time to clear the air that would normally get trapped during the compensatory strategy that a narrow ISA would use. With a wide ISA, we tend to use a little bit more forceful exhalation because what we have to do is we have to, we have to close, we have to close the, the, the wide ISA. And the way we do that is using superficial musculature like external oblique, which would then narrow that angle. So that actually does require a little bit more of an effortful exhalation. But here's the problem that, that people are running into, especially with the wide ISA archetypes, is that they're using high levels of muscle activity during the, the, the breathing activities and they're using a more forceful exhalation. 
The problem that you run into with that is I've already got somebody that's utilizing a very, very strong exhalation, concentric orientation type of strategy. And then all you're doing is reinforcing that during the activities that you're attempting to use to restore movement capabilities. So what you end up doing is you just reinforce the strategy because by driving the exhalation too aggressively, they recruit their superficial strategy just like they're doing under most circumstances and then you don't get the changes that you want. And so we have to take the superficial strategies into consideration whenever we're trying to coach somebody through some form of breathing activity, especially when we're trying to restore movement. Um, so under those circumstances, we actually use a very relaxed, casual type of breathing with very slow, methodical movements. Um, very, very low tension, very, very low effort. And because again, if we have this really, really strong, wide ISA, superficial, concentric orientation, you're never gonna get your way out of that by trying to, to use more effort. Because again, you just reinforce the strategy. So again, I would caution you against um, thinking that there's only a way or there's only two ways. What we have to do is we have to consider what this person that we're working with is, is bringing to us. And then we have to reason our way through the, the, the strategies to alleviate whatever we're trying to change or reinforce what we're trying to reinforce. So from a performance standpoint, if I do have somebody that, that has to drive a lot of high force, then I do want to use a concentric strategy. I do want to use this aggressive exhalation. So always taking the individual into consideration. Okay, now I don't use these tests because my table tests will tell me exactly where these compressive strategies are. Just because somebody doesn't have pain with, with these, these positions, it doesn't mean that there's not a compressive strategy there. It just means that it's not sensitized, so everybody kind of ignores it. Um, and then when somebody does have pain, they tend to blame the poor little rotator cuff. It's not his fault. He's just the result. And so let's talk about where this compressive stuff comes from, okay? So let's go Hawkins-Kennedy first. So Hawkins-Kennedy is, is that, that test at about 90 degrees of shoulder flexion where they drive into rotation and, and you always get that wincy face on everybody there, okay? And so what this is, this is caused by a limitation in shoulder flexion below 90 degrees. So this is a posterior lower compression that steals the early phase of external rotation of, of arm elevation. So um, again, go to YouTube and check out my shoulder flexion video so you can actually see how to measure this thing, okay? We're also gonna end up with an anterior orientation of the thorax because for me to have that posterior lower compression, I got all the other stuff laid on top of it. So I got dorsal rostral, I got pump handle down. Um, so again, I'm dealing with a lot of compressive strategy and the anterior orientation. So I've got an early uh, loss of shoulder flexion, but because of, the, of the, the orientation, I'm gonna hit that IR early, and then I'm gonna run out of internal rotation very, very quickly. So again, I get this compressive strategy right at 90 degrees. So here's the solution. Number one, we wanna eliminate interference. So we're gonna avoid bilateral symmetrical exercises. So most of this stuff with a barbell in your hands is probably a bad idea. Anything that's considered a lat development exercise is probably a bad idea with an exception that I'm gonna talk about in a minute. So that takes chin-ups and stuff like that off the table. Next step, restore the dynamic ISA. I have to have an ISA that can move so I know that I can recapture breathing excursion. We're gonna keep the activities in, in um, uh, below, rather, uh, 90 degrees of shoulder elevation. 
because what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to capture that that posterior lower expansion but i don't want to provoke any symptoms in the process and so again everything's going to be below that shoulder level the exception might be that we can use a variation of a deep squat pull down. This might not be the first exercise of choice, but it might be something that we can go to because there's a turn that's associated with this. So once we drive something with a, with a reach below shoulder level or a supported activity below shoulder level, we may be able to access a higher level of flexion without any symptoms whatsoever. And especially in this deep squat where we're gonna get some of that posterior lower expansion in that position and then we can superimpose a turn. So we're actually gonna use the compensatory strategy that Mihail was talking about to our advantage. And we create that turn and we create a reciprocal expansion as we move one arm through the, the pull down um, at a time. And that's gonna give us the expansion that we want. So there you go. So there's your solution. This is for the Hawkins-Kennedy positive test. Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. The thing that you that you have to start to recognize is that is that external rotation and internal rotation are not either ors. They both happen at the same time in different ways. So <clears throat> If you just turned a femur to the extreme of external rotation. So outward, okay. like that. I'm, I'm talking about one femur and just like the extreme of external rotation, okay? Mm -hmm. And then you fix it there. And then I take a pelvis and I turn it towards that leg. It's still externally rotated. However, the representation, depending on where I, I pay attention, if I looked at the hip joint, as I turn the pelvis towards that leg, I reduce the external rotation bias and increase the internal rotation bias. So both are there at the same time. Internal rotation gets superimposed on top of external rotation. So when we talk about ERs and IRs, that's why I use the word bias. Mm -hmm. because both are happening at the same time, just to different degrees. The mm -hmm. problem with the, with the representation of, of the um, internal and external rotation based on dead guy anatomy is that there's been this like zero point, And then everything on this side has been IR, everything on this side has been ER. And then that creates a horrible representation of what's really going on. Okay, so if we want to get closer to, to reality, we have to recognize that, that both are occurring at the same time. Okay, the expansion of external rotation <clears throat> represents the maximum amount of motion that I can create. The internal rotation moves back and forth between the extremes of external rotation. So when I say ER or IR, as we're talking about a squat, we're talking about a bias. So I want to make that very clear. I hope that's, I hope that's understandable. Mm -hmm. Okay. So <clears throat> if you're, if you're at the top of you're standing up straight. Okay. And you're going to initiate the squat. The bias is going to be towards external rotation. Now, external rotation it's not a line, 
It's not an arc. It's not a plane. It's a space. Okay. It's a space around you that you can access depending on the shape of your body. Okay? For the sake of, of representation, I have drawn it on a whiteboard. A whiteboard is two-dimensional. And so it's a flat picture. <clears throat> what I want you to understand is that external rotation is a space around you. So as you, as you descend into the squat, <clears throat> you will be biased towards external rotation. Wherever the space that you can access external rotation is, is where the, the leg is gonna kind of point when you initiate a squat, okay? So if I can expand on the backside of my body, so we call it dorsal rostral expansion on, in, in the upper back, we call it uh, counternutation in the pelvis. If I can do those things, then I can usually keep my, my knees kind of pointed straight ahead because I can access extra rotation bias in that position, okay? So I'm descending through that space of external rotation. That's where I can actually access it. As I descend farther into the squat, I'm gonna go through a, a, a space where I have to increase the amount of internal rotation bias. So the pelvis actually changes shape to get through that middle range, okay? So, so it moves towards what would look like an exhaled position of the pelvis. So the inhaled position of the pelvis is at the top. That's an external rotation bias. As I go through the middle range, I have to capture an external, or I'm sorry, an exhale bias which is internal rotation. So the pelvis changes shape and the femur could maintain its position, but the, but the, the overall representation of the pelvis and the femur at that point in time is internal rotation. As I descend farther, I have to re-expand and I have to go back towards my external rotation bias at the bottom of a squat, okay? Now, how many times you ever seen a perfect squat? Almost never, right? Because most people can't assume the, the ideal shape to pass through those ranges and capture the full position because they don't have full adaptability. And a lot of that's just based on structure. So now we can go all the way back to what's your bias? Are you, are you a wide ISA guy or a narrow ISA guy? right? That would bias you towards one end of the spectrum. So if I'm a narrow, I'm really good at the top and the bottom of the squat. If I'm, an, if I'm a wide, I'm really good in that middle part of the squat, generally speaking. Okay. Bill, can I ask a question on that? Absolutely not. Okay. I was on a roll, dude. You interrupted my train. No, go ahead. Of course you can. Um, is this why if you watch, uh, I watch a lot of powerlifter squat just repetitively over time. And yeah. once you see they hit certain areas they either have like a hip hinge or something goes wonky <clears throat> yeah they're out of room shape they're out yeah. of room right mm -hmm. so so here you go so let's just say that you can't expand posteriorly okay knowing full well that to initiate the squat and move through a, an external rotation bias or to hit the bottom of the squat which is an external rotation bias 
and I can't do that. So I'm initiating the squat more towards my internal rotation bias, right? And so it's gonna look, for lack of a better explanation, hingy. It's gonna look more like my deadlift than it is my Olympic weightlifter is sitting down at the bottom of his squat, right? Because that, and, and again, it could be physical structure. It could be the training strategies that you've been using that, that don't allow a shape change to occur that allows you to access that motion. So again, you can diagnose, I've been doing this a lot lately. I gotta stop that. <clears throat> so you can diagnose a squat or, or, or what people can and can't do you know, based on, the, on, on that shape as they move through the squat. So when I see somebody that's got this really, really hingy squat, they've got what, what would be termed a really strong lordosis as they're trying to squat, that's a pelvis that is compressed on the backside and anteriorly oriented. Very, very useful, very useful for producing force, very useful for stopping motion from occurring. So again, let, let's use Joseph's powerlifter as an example. So as they try to squat, they don't wanna to squat too deep, right? They wanna stop the motion at a very specific point where they just get far enough down towards the ground where they get a, they get a pass from the judge. I did it again, somebody slapped my wrist. Um, where, they, where they pass their, their lift, right? So they get their white lights so they can say, oh, it was a good squat or it was not a good squat, right? And so then that becomes useful under those circumstances, but it doesn't make it better than something else. It just means that it is a variation. So when you see someone's knees <coughs> deviate, when they put, one sec. When you see someone's knees deviate early in a squat, And, and people say you're externally rotating, what they're doing is they're moving their knees apart because at that point in time, the, the shape of their body does not allow them to access external rotation straight ahead because it's out here. External rotation is out there. That's where they find it based on their physical structure or based on the context of the lift or, or the, the performance of the movement. That's why external rotation is a space that is around you based on the shape of your body. Neutral spine. Got it. That's a bad word. See, everybody freaked out for a second, didn't they? They go, I didn't hear him say it, did you? Yeah, he said neutral. Yeah. Gotta get rid of that one, pal. Yeah. Spine moves. Through every squat, it moves. Okay? There's no ideal, there's no one, there are many. Okay? You're spanked. I, I, that's your first spank, your first call and you get spanked on the first call. Wow. I think that's a good sign. You know, I have a list of words, right? Uh, I don't know if I recall. Are that. you unfamiliar with that? <clears throat> uh, there's, there's a few people on the call that have been around me long enough. They, they kind of know where the, all the bad words are. So Damien here is having trouble with his sticking point in his squad. He wants to know why it happens. Good morning. Happy. Friday, I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, wow. 
So it's kind of an unusual Friday. Um, it is it is a holiday for some, and it's just a normal Friday for some. So if you're celebrating, enjoy yourself. And if you're not uh, celebrating, have a great Friday so far. Okay. Um, yesterday's coffee and coaches conference call was great. We had a great time. We went two hours. It was it felt like ten minutes. Um, we covered a lot of ground on a lot of topics, but it was very very squat heavy. And we talked about a lot of aspects of of the squat. Um, especially the interaction of internal and external rotation and, and pressure management and such. And so I wanted to throw this segment up for you because um, I know at some point in time you're going to have to watch something today. Might as well watch this and, and actually learn something by accident perhaps. Um, but regardless, um, enjoy the segment. Have a great Friday and I will see you next week. Right. Under, under, no, under a normal circumstance, again, we're, we're making this comparison to an ideal. We would want to be able to externally rotate again to access that that space. But if you if you move your feet apart, if you point your toes out and your knees follow and you're capturing depth, the femur is rotating inward, okay? And there's there's good reasons for that because of the way that intra-rotation influences the, the position and the shape of the pelvis also influences how much pressure you create inside your body. So if I release the pressure inside my body in a deep squat, and I have a barbell on my chest, it's highly unlikely that I'd be able to stand up with it if I release too much. So I have to maintain internal rotation, which is forced into the ground, so I can keep pushing up, so I can maintain high levels of pressure inside my body, so I can eventually push back up. Because if I can't produce pressure upward, I don't go upward, I stay down, right? So again, we're, we're tuning, that's why I say this internal and external rotation is happening at the same time. We're tuning how much ER we need to get depth and how much IR we need to keep force going up. That, that's why there's no black and white. You can't say, oh, this is ER and this is IR because they, they work together. They don't work in opposition. They're not opposites, right? They're always there at the same time. It's just to what degree. Bill, I have a question related to this. Sure. Um, I'm wondering then is, is there ever a point, like when does the shape actually change? Is it more just gradual? How can you ever associate, like, I guess, an identifying label? There are my air quotes. Um, <laughs> ER, IR. Uh -huh. Do we ever end up at 50, 50 in which the bias shifts? Yeah. Can you elaborate a little more, please? Yeah. <laughs> there, so think about it. Think about it, Grace. There has to be a point. There has to be this one point where the, the force output is maximum, right? And, and the effort is at maximum. And then so, so everything sort of like collides together. And then it could sort of like changes so i have i have this this er that's disappearing this ir that's increasing and then they meet at this one point in time and space and then that's where this maximum force output is where there's almost no motion and time stops and the highest force that's possible is being produced and then they just kind of pass each other the night and then they go through it so if this is the top of my squat and everything goes like this and this is the maximum force that i need and then this is me going to depth in the squat and everything kind of spreads back out and then as i push back out i hit the maximum force spot again and then it expands back out. You see it? 
-hmm. So everything does this. Everything in the whole universe moves this way. We move from a position of expansion to compression to expansion. So there has to be a place where that ha where that happens. Can you pick it out? Meh. We have representations of it. That's why I talk about things like the sticking point. So the sticking point in a squat, if you've ever put enough weight on your back and you've done enough reps, the sticking point of this is the squat where people come up out of the squat and then they slow down like crazy dramatically and they grind and they grind and they grind and they grind and then they push through it and then it gets easier, right? So, so they look at this sticking point and they go, well, why does this happen? Because that's where this transition is occurring. So you can see it. Can you see the exact moment where it happens? No. But in every, in every movement where we have this compression, or I'm sorry, this where we have expansion to compression to expansion again, whether we're walking across the ground, there is a point where the maximum force is applied to the ground. Now, it's not your maximum force that you could tolerate or produce. It's just the maximum force in that activity, right? So, so walking is this. Okay? A squat is that. Right? There's a point where that force is at maximum, right? For that activity, for the activity that we're describing. So does getting that, stuck in the sticking point, does that mean you have trouble transitioning shapes or that actually, or could it also be that you have trouble creating IR enough force production to get out of that shape? I guess that would be. How about a yes? Sure. How about we say yes, because I think you're describing, everybody's kind of going like this. I don't know if you're, you're looking at everybody's face on the screen there, but everybody's going like this. It's like, yeah, it's like the same thing. It's like, okay, that's the maximum shape change that I can produce under these circumstances. And so you go up and you literally meet the force that's, that's trying to crush you. And then you stop dead. And anybody ever do, do a squat like that, where you're just like sitting there and you're pushing and pushing and your spotter's going, come on. And you're going, uh, this is it. <laughs> you know, and then it's like, uh oh, and then what happens? You release the pressure and you start going the wrong way. Right. So so literally you you have demonstrated your maximum shape changing. Damn it. Your maximum shape changing force producing capabilities in that lift. That was it that you're done. You're toast. Mm -hmm. Right. You have just represented your ability to overcome gravity.